0: Are you a real estate investor looking to elevate your income, freedom and lifestyle? If so, optimize your daily performance by downloading our free guide, Raising the Bar, 5 Steps to Elevate Your Habits at ElevatePod.com. In this guide, created by yours truly, you'll learn why you do what you do, how to easily institute cues in your environment to trigger desired behavior, directly applicable steps to create a fulfilling future, and much more. Get your free copy now at ElevatePod.com and kickstart your new habits today. Your future self will thank you.
1: Welcome to Elevate. The masterclass where we dissect
0: the elements of exceptional achievement and lifestyle design with a focus on personal growth and real estate investing. Now, here's your host, Tyler Chesser. Elevate Nation, welcome back. This is Tyler Chesser. I'm so thankful to have you here, and I'm blessed and grateful to be sitting again with my friend, the great Barbara Oakley, today. Today, you're going to learn about neuroscience, you're going to learn about cognitive psychology and why that matters as a real estate investor. You're going to learn about how to learn effectively even more. You're going to learn about investing in yourself and why that is important. Why that's important not only for your real estate portfolio, but for the design of your life. You're also going to learn a bit about this little thing called the identity and what that means for you and why that can unlock so many doors for your future. This podcast, this episode is so good. Elevate Podcast is all about mindset, mind expansion, and personal development for high-performing real estate investors. I'm your host, Tyler Chesser, and I'm a professional real estate investor and high-performance coach. It is my job to decode the stories, habits, and multifaceted expertise of world-class investors and other experts to help you elevate your performance and lifestyle. Are you ready to take it to another level? It is time let's raise the bar today. And I want to invite you to pay the fee. The fee is to pay it forward. All you have to do is share this episode with one person, grab the link, send in a text message, send in an email, post it on social media, whatever you have to do. If you've already done that before in the past, thank you so much. We just invite you to do that. Once again, we invite you to share this episode right here. So go ahead and pay the fee. If it's your first time listening today, we also invite you to pay the fee, but we also welcome you And are so excited to be able to pour into you. Welcome to Elevate Nation. You're part of the tribe. You're part of the family. And by the way, this is a movement. And I want to ask you also to give us a rating, review, and subscribe or follow Elevate Podcast on wherever it is that you listen or watch podcasts. It's very important to us that we receive your feedback. And we are so thankful from the bottom of our heart for all the amazing feedback that we've gotten. We're going to continue to pour in massive value to you today. I want to introduce you. I want to dive in. To this episode with Barbara Oakley, who is an American professor of engineering at Oakland University and McMaster University, whose online courses on learning are some of the most popular, massive, open online courses classes in the world. She is involved in multiple areas of research, ranging from STEM education to learning practices. She also co-created and taught learning how to learn. Powerful Mental Tools to Help You Master Tough Subjects, the world's most popular online course. It is available on Coursera. She also wrote a book, A Mind for Numbers, How to Excel at Math and Science, Even if You Flunked Algebra. And by the way, she's written many other books and they're all phenomenal. This is a standalone book, though it it is the companions of the ideas presented in the MOOC or the MOOC. She's authored op-ed articles about learning in the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. She's also appeared on Elevate before, believe it or not. And it was one of our most popular episodes, and it continues to be an amazing discussion. Uh, That's episode 159, Learning How to Learn Effectively. We take what we discussed in that episode to the next level today. So I want to invite you to buckle up and enjoy this phenomenal, this insightful, and this life-changing discussion with Barbara Oakley, my friend, Barbara Oakley. Welcome back to Elevate. How are you?
1: Tyler, I am doing so well that it's kind of, it's memorable.
0: (laughs) I know, (laughs) you know, it's funny. I was right before we started this conversation on air, we were just reflecting about how quickly it's been since we had a first sit down on Elevate, which I've shared with you is one of our most popular episodes of all time. And that's episode one fifty nine. Learning how to learn effectively with Barbara Oakley, and wow, it's been uh, it's been amazing to really get to know you and to get familiar with you. But to have fun in a conversation, I was telling you, it was so much fun, and I feel like you shared that, so thank you. But how how have things been in your world?
1: Oh, just busy, exciting. I, I'm. I mentioned I'm getting ready to head off to Eastern Europe tomorrow. So uh, so that will be very busy and very exciting. Uh, it's Slovenia, Romania, and Hungary. And so I have some little side trips. I'm hoping to go to, you know, Vlad the Impaler's castle and, you know, take a boat ride on the Danube. But lots of, uh, I mean, there's just a lot of interest in learning in Eastern Europe. And I think it's just because people really are uh, aware of the precious assets that learning can give them. Sometimes I think we lose sight of that here because we've got, <laughs> we've got a lot mm-hmm. uh, and uh, you forget how easy it is to lose it.
0: So when you think about the precious assets that learning can give you, um, you know, maybe what you're describing is uh, here in America, we may take for granted what those things are because, we live in, in, you know, maybe a society of just so much abundance and, and, you know, whatever, whether it's access to information, access to people, access to entertainment. Maybe there's a lot of things that are um, clouding sort of the, the focus of, of many folks in, in the Western world. What is it that we receive from learning, perhaps maybe that we take for granted? Is there anything that you would point to specifically?
1: simply the act of being able to learn something new I know in South Africa when I visited there do you know there there have been riots where people were killed because parents had traveled many many miles by foot to try and to enroll their children in schools and the schools you know closed their enrollments before the parents were able to get to that point in line so it's Learning is just something that is so taken for granted in this country, and yet it's, it's really not uh, through much of history. So many people have really um, done everything they possibly could to try to help their children gain a good education. I still remember reading about uh, uh, a father in India who had gone to school and he had worked so hard because he'd been unable to get a good education, but he wanted his son to have a good education. So he worked really hard to send his son to a school. And then he found out that actually the school was actually, most of the teachers didn't really show up to the school. And so then when when it came time to do the tests, Uh, pretty much all the, the students were flunking, and he was saying, wait, why? I've spent all this money. I've done everything I can to try to get my child out of poverty, and they were just like, sorry, you're from poverty, and that's where you're going to stay, and it was their educational system that was keeping them, even though they were being fooled, That the educational system was actually giving something good but i should give i should turn to a more positive uh insight and that is simply that um especially through online learning we are there's just a some really great things unfolding and i I love the story of my favorite athlete of all time julius yego who was from kenya couldn't afford to go overseas and study, but he always wanted to throw the javelin, but there weren't any javelin throwing coaches in all of Kenya. And so so we just went online to great javelin throwing coaches, watched their videos, and by watching and practicing, 98% of the time, just on his own, he became the world champion in throwing the javelin. So I think that's such a great lesson for us today that you know, online learning is often maligned as sort of a, a cheap second best at best. And yet it has so much potential to to help people learn all sorts of things, even things like javelin throwing that they never thought they could learn.
0: I love that. And, and you know, what I what the imagery that's coming to me right now is we're having this conversation is it's like this big golden lock. And it has this huge key that we have in our hands and it's this choice to learn, right? And what happens is we turn the key and we unlock this future. I think it's 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 about unlocking our future, the power and the access to learning and growing our wisdom, our knowledge, the way that we interact with our environment is the key to unlocking our future, which is why I just love having conversations with you because, you know, not only learning how to learn but also learning about neuroscience learning about cognitive psychology i believe that these there are clues in learning this stuff that can help us unlock our future not only as real estate investors but as human beings and and but i want to dive into that with you today and and i i asked you very nicely before we had this conversation if it was okay that we went there And you became really excited about this because um, this is a different way to kind of think about these concepts, right? You know, when you think about investors, a lot of times investors will come to me and say, hey, look, I think it's great that you're all about, you know, personal development and mindset and mind expansion. But, you know, all I really need to know is how to find the next deal or how to, you know, implement the next strategy or create more cash flow or, you know, evaluate the next deal And I think that that's a very narrow way of looking at it. And I say that a little bit tongue in cheek. I don't really have that conversation very often, but I think many investors sort of think that, you know, that stuff's great, but what I really need is the strategy or the tactic or the tool that's narrowly focused in my field. But I want to know from you, like, why is it important that real estate investors know more about neuroscience and cognitive psychology? If we were to start there and let's, let's dive into that a bit.
1: So, first, it's important to know that neuroscience and cognitive psychology are really, they're they're two fields that are hand in hand. We tend to think of them as, oh, you're trained as a neuroscientist, oh, you're trained as a cognitive psychologist, and yes, You go through different training processes, but really both are trying to center on understanding how the brain works, and so the best uh, of either neuroscientists or psychologists they meld into one another, and you're really I mean you're studying the same stuff just from a different kind of lens and uh, and so. So, I tend to just think of it as studying how the brain works. You know, which perspective you use doesn't matter so much, um, except that I tend to grow a little dissatisfied with cognitive psychologists because they tend to think kind of in these boxes that are less um, close to how the brain really works. You know, for example, they'll think of working memory and you have a visual sketch, you know, sketch pad, and, uh, and so forth. But that's, you know, it's like you have this sketch pad in your brain or something, and that's how they draw it as a box that you, you it, it's not really how the brain is actually working. Now, neuroscientists, on the other hand, they're really thinking in terms more of how the brain is actually working. But on the other hand, it can be some what harder to parse what they're talking about because it's not these nice, simple boxes like a visual sketch pad or, or something of this nature. So, um, But why is it even important to know anything about the brain? And the reality is you don't need to become a neuroscientist. You don't need to become a cognitive psychologist. You just need a few little... T- uh, if. If you're trying to be at the edge of really learning or being on on top of what's going on and the top of your game in investing, you want to know a little bit about how your brain is working because that's the tool you're using to analyze what's out there. So you want to know, for example, when you are fooling yourself about what you're investing in. You know, when are you... Going in, When are you going in thinking you are analyzing everything in a completely factual manner, but you're actually biased? You're not really reflecting what's actually going on in reality. Wouldn't you like to know that? And just being aware of how the brain can bias itself can help you to step back and be more uh, more intelligent about your investing. I know that Ray Dalio, uh, in his principles, one of the things he talks about is how important it is to get information from a variety of sources and not to just get the information that makes you, that goes along with what you, you know, think is right. Mm-hmm. And um, and I, I couldn't agree more. The challenge is always that listening to something that goes against your grain doesn't make you feel good. It's something you kind of want to avoid because you actually get this little dearth of dopamine that makes it feel like it's less fun, less interesting, not something you should pursue. And, you know... And yet this may be the very piece of information you need to appropriately handle an investment situation.
0: Okay. So this is exactly why I wanted to go down this path. Um, When you think about the combination of biases, you know, a confirmation bias sort of thought process feels good when information validates your perspective, right? It feels good. Um, maybe there's neuroscience that we could talk about in terms of why that feels good. Maybe it's dopamine. And I'd love to know where the centers of the brain are firing and wiring together when you know, that sort of endeavor occurs. But what you're talking about is understanding that perhaps when we receive information that goes against our thought process or our perspective, that doesn't feel good. And so when we have a Understanding of where that happens in the brain or why that's happening in the brain and how that relates to cognitive psychology, then we can observe this thought process and perhaps learn something from maybe the opposite opinion instead of just saying, you know what, I'm just going to do what I think is right. I'm going to seek information that confirms that my opinion or my analysis or my approach is correct. Is that what you're saying, Barb? Yes, that's
1: exactly what I'm saying. And, um, I think the challenge is some people are naturally pretty good at seeking out contrary opinions and some people aren't. And the, and the the fact of the matter is I've known some very, very successful people who do not seek out contrary opinions Mm. Uh, or they'll seek it out, but only regarding certain things, not other things. And
0: why do you think you that know, is, is that an outlier or you think it's just that maybe not correlated to perhaps their success when you think of some of those folks who may not be seeking the contrary in opinion.
1: So there's something about uh, when you're on the autistic spectrum, a, so one of the earliest researchers on the autistic spectrum um was Hans Asperger. And of course, that's where the term Asperger syndrome arose for someone who is somewhat mildly on the autistic spectrum.
0: Elon Musk, from what I understand, is on that spectrum, correct?
1: Right. And see, if you have what seems to be a disadvantage, like being on the autistic spectrum or being dyslex, having dyslexia. You, um, you can actually have some real advantages too because some parts of your brain don't maybe work the same way and maybe don't work as well as other people's parts of that brain. But other parts of your brain can work even better. And so this is the case with those with, uh, who are on the autistic spectrum. You can often focus really, really well and you can get really good at what you're focused on. Now, for a typical person, um, or a neurotypical person, as they say, you can be really good at a lot of different things. So because you can be good at a lot of different things, you just, you you know, your, your life attracts you. Like you have lots of things you can do. You can go out, you can have dinner, you can meet with people, you can still love what you're doing with your, you know, whatever you're interested in, but you can do lots of other things as well. But that means you don't really put quite as much time or effort or focus into that thing as someone who might be on the autistic spectrum who really loves that thing. And they can focus on it. You know, it doesn't bother them that they're not doing all these other things. So, um, so what this can mean is that they can get really good at what they're doing. And they can also kind of be monomaniacal and not want to hear anything contrary to what they're doing. So it depends on what you're doing. If you're doing something like coding and so forth, and you're not really wanting to listen to someone else, and you're really good at coding you know, then that's okay. But if you're really good at coding and you're not wanting to listen to someone else, and you're also wanting to run a business, maybe that's not so okay. Because as you're running your business, you're going to have some funky things that you're doing because you're going down this one path, but not willing to listen to anyone else. So I think it also depends on how lucky you are. If you're lucky enough early on, and in you're investing to get lots and lots of money, it may not matter so much if you're not willing to listen to anyone else. <laughs> you
0: know, Interesting. Yeah. So but for the long haul, you would think that, uh, you know, the, the cream rises or settles, you know, to a certain degree. I mean, if you're In the real estate business, as you know, one example and and really the focus that that we have here on Elevate, you know, it it is about long-term success. Now, of course, if you hit a major home run or several major home runs, perhaps through luck early and that compounds, you know, that can put you on a different playing field, but perhaps, you know, there's an argument to be made that, you know, the lack of learning in the undue circumstances that maybe were in many ways, luck will come back to bite you later on. And that's where I'm saying that the cream sort of settles. I don't know if that resonates.
1: Well, there's two ways to look at it. There's the cream rises to the top, but so does the scum. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. uh, So sometimes can, people can get to the top, uh, you know, for a variety of means. But um, I truly believe that as a society, it is incumbent for us and it is incumbent for people who are doing well in business and investment to, um, you know, to be able to hear more than one side of a story. And to, to be a little bit broader in their outlook, you know, than to just be totally and monomaniacally focused on one thing. Because it's, you know, it's great um, until it isn't great. I, You know, I can give you, so I know that listeners will sit there and laugh and say, yeah, well, Barb, it was because you were stupid. But, <laughs> but early on, I was like, okay. I'm going to monomaniacally focus on what I'm totally interested in, which was learning another language, and uh, and so I did. I, I I followed my passion and I learned Russian, which of course nowadays I'm like, oh my Ukrainian friends. Oh, but, I know. Um, but, uh, but the the challenge is that I monomaniacally followed my passion, and in another time, in another era. It could have proven wonderful, but it sure didn't prove out to be so good here. I didn't, like, put my eggs in several baskets. And because I didn't, it it meant that ultimately, when I was age 26, and I was going to leave the Army, that, you know, there wasn't a, uh, um, you know, there weren't really any good job opportunities available. So, but because uh, you know, I decided, don't just follow your passion, broaden your passion, um, I, it kind of opened up a lot of new possibilities because I was a little broader in my thinking than just the average person. I do tend to think that people who are, are really into investing are really into investing. But that means they can often be reading a lot of the same things. And that means they're doing a lot of the same things and if you're doing a lot of the same things that means that there's less opportunity for you. So thinking a little differently by um, you know by learning something new and kind of learning from different perspectives trying to go at things deliberately from a out-of-the-box sort of approach I think can be invaluable no matter what you're doing.
0: You mentioned earlier on in the conversation that investors real estate investors, you don't have to become a neuroscientist or an expert in neuroscience, but you need to know of it. And you need to have an understanding from a high level of how the brain works. So if you would be open to it, Barb, I know you've done many talks on this, you've done courses. And by the way, I mean, massive, what do what they call it? Massive online courses. Uh, They've
1: opened online courses. Yeah. It's I confusing. Yeah.
0: Millions of people have enjoyed learning uh, alongside you and, and with you as a teacher. And so thinking about how the brain works, would you be open to giving us a little bit of a crash course here?
1: Oh, okay.
0: So, (laughs) She's like, where do I start?
1: (laughs) So the first crash course is if you really want to learn something and really know it well, you have to be able to retrieve it from your own mind. So that means you're not reading it from a page you're retrieving it from your mind. So let's say you're studying some report. If you really want to know that report in an intuitive way that later you can draw on those ideas, you will look at the report, you will read it, and you will look away and see if you can remember the key points of that report. And if you have, uh, if you've been indoctrinated by educators, you'll say, oh, that's just memorization. Oh, contraire, it's not just memorization. In fact, this kind of retrieval practice from your own brain, as it turns out, is one of the best ways for you to actually understand that topic more deeply. So why on earth would just calling it forth from your own brain help you to understand or learn anything better? It's because when you learn something and you've placed it in long-term memory, it's actually simply you've made a set of connections between some neurons in your long-term memory. That's all. And if if you're looking at it on the page, your eyes are looking at it. It's bouncing in there. It's kind of bouncing around your brain, but it's not making links in long-term memory. So the only way you actually learn something is by making those links in long-term memory. So as you're you're looking at something, you're getting this very faint pattern in long-term memory, or as you're listening to this, you're hearing, you're getting a very faint pattern in your long-term memory between neurons but it's only when you retrieve that information later that that information gets strengthened and really holds as a kind of a scaffold for, for your learning. So when you hear people telling you, oh, you don't need to look it up, you, you know, I mean, or to memorize things, you can always just look it up. Tell yourself right away, that person is not up to date in what they know about how you learn effectively, because that's old school. They'll say, you know, they are modern reform approaches. But I mean, would you know French if you were just, you know, looking it up on Google Translate? Of course you wouldn't. No. So, So I think one of the most fundamental things you can do if you really want to know about the brain and know about learning is throw away that idea that you can always just look it up and if you really want to learn something, you retrieve it a number of times from your own work, from your own long-term memory. This is where flashcard systems like Anki, A N K I, and a system I really like is called I Do Recall. Um, so let's say you're reading a report, you can go to I Do Recall. You can load their app right on your um, desktop, and then you can. Copy that part of the report you're you're reading and make a little flashcard of some key aspect that you want to remember. And let's say you read a report and there's like four or five key things you want to remember. What's surprising is you'll go, yeah, I got these. There's no need for me to, you know, make a little flashcard thing. I got these. Well, if you're Warren Buffett, you might have those. But if you're like most people, if you make some flashcards using something like I do recall and check yourself the next day, you'll see that you look at that information in a really fresh way. So, uh, so anyway, so that's one way that um, knowing about your brain can actually help you learn more effectively. I could go on. <laughs> well,
0: I'm, I'm actually just curious, this is a follow up. Um, so thinking about that from a conceptual level, that makes sense. And by the way, that resonates with me when I think about a, one of the phrases that is just near and dear to me is that repetition is the mother of all skill. And, um, you know, I think that comes down to practice. It comes down to. Um, immersing yourself in learning, find joy, finding joy in learning. And I think that there's a little bit of a perhaps a dopamine uh, response that you receive when you learn something new and and maybe even sort of understanding that and fully engaging with that. It's a bit of a clue in terms of how we strengthen that, you know, the neuron firing together and wiring together. But, you know, when I think of uh, neuroscience, I'm curious from your standpoint, is it helpful for people? investors to know about the various parts of the brain when it comes to, you know, prefrontal cortex, the amygdala, the cerebellum, so on and so forth. Is it helpful to understand the construction and the way that information comes through and perhaps sticks around for long-term memory and the way that we can retrieve that? Is it helpful to understand that?
1: I mean, you can go down many rabbit trails and they go deeper and deeper. I think what's most important to understand is that there's working memory, which is just this temporary place where you're holding ideas, and there's long-term memory, and that you're making sets of links in long-term memory when you're learning something. So is the amygdala important? Yeah, if you're a, um, a trainer and you're trying to make a lot of money, and so then you want to tell people, yeah, the amygdala, you know, if you get scared, it's going to make you so you can't learn as effectively. Yeah, you know, who cares? Uh, most of us are not going to be scared when we're learning, at least let us hope. Um, and, you know, it's not really important to know all the different anatomical terms it's just important to know that there's some parts of memory where, you know, you fool yourself, you think you have it in long term memory, and it's just in working memory in the prefrontal cortex, you know, I mean, if you're really looking for a geography um, or a geographical set of terms, but, um, you know, I, I do think that for a long time, people have said that neuroscience doesn't really have anything to add to educators because it's a bridge too far. It's too like knowing the anatomy of the brain and how it works and all that function is just too complicated and there's not much there. But the thing is, it, it there is a lot there, but you just don't need to learn all those anatomical terms. You can just use a few... Um, you know, heuristics or, you know, metaphorical understanding of the key ideas. And there's a lot there to help you with learning. In fact, learning how to learn the the massive open online course, uh, I remember, so there were lots of courses out. When our course first came out was 2014, there were lots of courses on learning and they had hardly anybody in them. And when we did, I remember when it first came out. Uh, before it even came out, it was like, uh, "There's twenty thousand signed up." Oh, oh, wait, no, there's forty. 000. No, there's eighty. Now there's one hundred and twenty thousand. Wait, there's two hundred thousand people in the course. And I'm telling Terry, my Terry Sanowski is my co-instructor. I'm like, Terry, oh my word! You know, there's like so much interest in this course. Why was it so different from your other standard learning courses? And it's because your standard education system course on learning has three weeks on the history of education, three more weeks, (laughs) theories of education. Then there's like three more weeks on how babies learn and maybe a little bit at the end on how you really learn, but nothing neuroscience, you know, just a tiny bit because it's too hard. We just spun it on its head and 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 just use metaphor to help people really understand there's a lot about neuro, neuroscience that's super directly applicable to allowing you to learn more effectively. And if you just get the basic idea with a, a little metaphor too, you can move ahead with this knowledge from neuroscience that neuroscientists are like, ooh, this is doctoral level stuff and it's like yeah maybe doctoral level but hey you can understand it with just an octopus as your metaphor (laughs) And, and it works great
0: Hey guys, just a quick word from our sponsor, then we'll be right back to the show. This episode of Elevate is brought to you by CF Capital, a national real estate investment firm founded by myself and my business partner, Brian Flaherty. CF Capital's mission is to provide property investment and asset management solutions to help investors like you maximize their returns by investing in high-value multifamily communities. If you are looking for risk-adjusted alternative investments in quality apartment communities, are seeking tax-optimized cash flow with appreciation upside, without all the hassles of managing, you might benefit from learning more about investing alongside our team. You're invited to reach out and learn more about how you can invest with us by visiting cfcaploc.com We're also currently offering a free ebook called The Bottom Line, 10 Ways to Increase Cash Flow in an Apartment Complex. Whether you're a new or experienced investor, we're confident you'll find massive value in this resource. So go get your free copy today at cfcapllc.com. And now please enjoy the rest of the show. Yeah, that's good. That's really helpful. I think about investors and I'm like, okay, well, what, What do we need to learn? And I almost think, you know, one of the things is, you know, we we observe patterns. We look at behavior not only as you know, folks who are perhaps end user of properties that we invest in, we look at behavior of, you know, interacting with other sellers. We look at behavior from a global scale, from a national scale from a local scale from an economic perspective. One of the things that's happening right now is that there's crosswinds in every direction from a macroeconomic, from a microeconomic standpoint, everything is interrelated. I almost think the critical factor in in many regards is learning how this all inter you know weaves within each other. And so that you can make effective decisions. Ultimately it comes down to making effective decisions based on that learning. And so when you think of utilizing repetition and retrieval uh, from a learning perspective. is there any practical tips that you might suggest for investors? Is it training that brain to be more receptive to learning and kind of building the scaffolding and the baseline of that? or is there something more to say, hey well let's learn concepts, let's learn um, you know let's learn uh, you know heur- heuristics or rules of thumb. Uh, what would you say to investors who are looking to apply this to take their their investing game to the next level?
1: So I think um, that in any sort of expertise, the bottom line is that you have developed an intuition about what to do that you cannot verbalize. So how do you develop that intuition? And that's the $64 million question. Mm -hmm. And there are ways to do it, of course. But here, again, is where I think that understanding how the brain works Can help you to better develop your intuition. So there's two major pathways the brain uses to to allow you to set those links in long-term memory or to create those sets of links. The first pathway, and I'll, I'll give the geography just so you know it, but obviously you don't need to remember this name. But declarative learning. It's called declarative because you can declare it. In other words, you're physically aware of what you're doing, goes through the hippocampus. So you're like, I'm explaining something to you. You are getting the basic concept. You're aware, kind of, you know, more or less, what that basic concept is, and you are moving it very weakly into links in long term memory. But there's a completely different Major highway that deposits sets of links in long-term memory, and that's that procedural system that goes through the basal ganglia. Again, it's not important to remember the names. It's just important to remember this is like it goes through a different, uh, you know, highway altogether. It's like um, one one route goes from. Seattle to New York City and the other route goes from, you know, uh, Los Angeles to Miami, something like that. Um, And, you know, you can say that the East Coast is long term memory and you want to get stuff, but it's different places in long term memory. But um, what happens is that procedural way of learning happens with stuff you do a lot. And it becomes knowledge that you are not aware of. So let's say, now I'm going to give you a a motor skills example, but this is also equivalent for analytical examples. So like if you're using Bayesian statistics, it's the same sort of underlying phenomena. But anyway, so let's say you want to learn to hit, hit a tennis ball. So your conscious working memory tells your basal ganglia, I want you to hit that ball. That's that procedural memory or procedural system. And then you look at your hand and you look at the ball and you see what comes out. And then you do it again and again and again. And the thing is, you have absolutely no idea of how your basal ganglia procedural system is learning to hit the ball. You just know I told it to hit it. Was I successful? But gradually, you just through those yeses and nos of was I successful or not. This complex network of the procedural system is actually learning to hit the ball. So you develop what's called a value function along with this procedural, you know, this training as your procedural system is learning. That value function is saying, oh yeah, you know, if I do it this way, it's actually going to make the ball come out. You know, it, it'll, it'll go the way I want it to.
0: But your body does it before your mind thinks of it.
1: Not necessarily. You, it's like that procedural system, you're telling it what you want. But what is happening inside that procedural system is something that has developed many, many, many previous episodes of you hitting the ball. And so it comes out with something that you know may that you're not conscious of how it's doing what it's coming out with. So I gave a physical example of hitting the ball, but let's let's say that you are a really, really good mathematician. In fact, you're a genius. Let's say your name is Fermat. And you look at an equation, and that equation is A to the N plus B to the N is equal to C to the N. And that is the famous Fermat's conjecture, that there was really no way, there there was no solution to any other n except for two, the number two. So for 250 years, well, Fermat said, he looked at it and said, you know, I've solved it. I know that there's no other solution to that equation except for the number two. I've solved it for 250 years, nobody could see how he solved it. And people didn't even know if he really had solved it. He's like, I don't have room on the margin here to write this, you know, the solution. So 250 years later, Andrew Wiles finally, you know, uh, in recent decades, solved it. And it was a, it's something like 126 page proof. And what, Undoubtedly was going on is Fermat in that wonderful, well-trained genius, you know, that he had practiced and really was just a profound expert. He could intuit the solution, but to actually lay that out step by step by step and not using that procedural system, but rather use more declarative learning, it took 126 pages of a proof to to do that. So intuition is often, you can see in a flash because you're using that well-trained procedural system, you can see in a flash something that would take you, um, you know, that maybe even just impossible for you to actually prove step by step by step. Uh, I know that sometimes there there's what's called the, the Feynman technique of if you can explain something to someone else, then you can understand it better. And that's true. But some things you can understand really well, but you can't explain it to someone else. Mm -hmm. I mean, good luck explaining how to tie your shoes. That's (laughs) procedural learning. It's really, really tough to explain that kind of thing. So how do you develop your intuition? Do lots and lots and lots of problems that are related to the kinds of problems you want to be solving. And try to, you know, add in... um, you know, uh, things that are a little bit outside the norm so that you're not like too boxed in with that training. It's, it's like a training set of data. And in fact, there's a lot of evidence. I mean, our understanding of the basal ganglia and how it works and how it learns has grown hand in hand with our understanding of how artificial intelligence, or, you know, how to advance artificial intelligence. For many years, okay, I'll, I'll babble and then I'll stop. Because uh, I'll go on my little rant. <laughs> so uh so for many years there uh, you know, Marvin Minsky and uh Chomsky and so forth were like uh artificial intelligence networks are a dead end. The only way that we can move forward in artificial intelligence is to reason through logic. And, for, and then Chomsky wrote this very famous paper saying, for example, learning how to speak a language, there is no way that you could ever learn how to speak simply by knowing what goes into a procedural system and what comes out. Sort of like, is that a good enough sound or is it not? And so he wrote this devastating critique of B.F. Skinner that like, eviscerated him and said oh, stupid all the work you're doing on you know uh conditioned learning and conditioned responses because nobody could ever even learn to speak a language that way but chomsky was dead wrong actually we do learn how to speak our native language by simply watching what comes you know getting an input ba. is that oh are they understanding me And just through this babbling and gradually input. Yes, that's good. No, they're not understanding me. So it's kind of like hitting the ball in tennis, but you're training your mouth. And that is how we learn to speak our native language. But that's also how you can become deeply intuitive about investing.
0: Okay, so this is interesting. And it makes me think of um, when you're a young child, and you're learning a language, as the example that you set. From what I understand, it's because we're mostly subconscious at that stage in our life. And I'd love to know kind of following along that path. When you think of intuition, are we really tapping into the subconscious mind when it comes to um, having that intuition? And perhaps the ability to learn that is by sort of implanting repetition or information or insight into our subconscious mind. I mean, I I know this is kind of a, you know, a a deep or maybe multi faceted question, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. And then also one other, the other side of it is what percentage of the brain is subconscious? Because I've heard 95% at, at um, so, some points in time. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that as well.
1: Oh, there's a um, wonderful uh, paper by Edvin Shai, who's a, a medical doctor studying um, how doctors learn and it's like 99.8 of what is actually occurring in the brain is completely outside of our consciousness and uh, and indeed why do why do you send doctors through 4 years of school in the US and then 3 to 4 years of internship you know, I mean, shouldn't they be able to learn it all through the school? No, there's actually a lot of stuff that you aren't aware of that you still need to be learning. And that's why doctors go out and do the training that they're doing. So, um,
0: so they're learning through practice and the activity rather than just reading it and bring it to the consciousness is what you're saying.
1: Right. And a problem has been that educators have thought really that the only time you actually learn something is when you're conscious of what you're learning. And that way lies danger because the advantage of, of subconscious procedural kind of learning is it's super fast. You get these intuitive flashes. It's really, you know, it's it's so when you train it, it's really fast. If you think all learning is always step by step and you're aware of everything, well, you're going to cripple your ability to learn. You want to be developing this really fast uh, intuitive system. But again, it is learning off the data set that you provide for it. It's very much like an AI you know, kind of machine learning situation. So if you provide data, for example, that doesn't take into account the black swans that could occur.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Suddenly, when a black swan occurs, you're really thrown for a loop.
0: Which, so which by the way, this. investors must take into account that. I mean, obviously, the past two years have been a prime example of the black swan, you know, a global pandemic as being one example. But the next black swan doesn't look exactly like that. In fact, it looks completely different. So please continue.
1: Yeah, and the next black swan, who knows, could be that the U.S. is no longer the, you know, sort of the world's uh, primary, uh, you know, uh, money. Uh,
0: yeah, reserve currency, right?
1: That's exactly right. And so that's something that you you've got to take into consideration because, but it's hard to do that because, you know, for one thing, the government is, You know, they have a sort of a vested interest in saying, oh, yes, our currency is very strong, no matter how deeply in debt um, that currency might get, because politicians have their own vested interests. So it's, um, you know, it's a kind of a funny thing, but, uh, you know, reading widely and I think being prepared for black swans is is a, a very, very important thing to be doing as an investor. Um, I can't help but think, though, that, um, you know, when you're investing in the hard asset of real estate, that that's probably a really good investment in the long term.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's one of the reasons why I just want to, you know, give so much kudos to the listeners today, because they're expanding their horizons and they're expanding their their minds. I mean, really, at the end of the day, this is mind expansion. And I think that sets you up for such a greater degree of success, but also a a life of fulfillment. When you have perspective to say, you know what, anything is possible. Um, What we've never seen before, you know, is certainly potentially on the horizon. It probably is more likely than not. And so, you know, I, I just think it's so valuable to understand you know, how we can not only understand our brain better, but how we can interact with that better, how we can change our brain, you know, to, to many regards today, it's been about, you know, repetition and practice, uh, you know, our discussion, but also thinking about how can we develop that intuition. But I, I would love to know, I mean, how do you think about mindset as it relates to not only learning and growing your skills, your your toolkit, your mental tools, your, your, your techniques in the way that you Uh, Make the best use of your brain. But, you know, a lot of what we talk about on this podcast is mindset. And, And the reason why that's important is because we're always telling ourselves a story of whether or not, you know, we're worthy of something, whether or not we can succeed doing something, so on and so forth. I mean, obviously, that that conversation continues in a, in a very large degree. But I think having an understanding of what that conversation is, separating ourselves from that and then making decisions based on an empowered sense of where we'd like to take our future is very valuable. But how do you think about mindset, Barbara?
1: Well, it's interesting. Uh, a woman recently came and she's uh, doing uh, a television show for PBS on learning. And she took the, the MOOC Learning How to Learn maybe three or four years ago, and she has severe dyslexia. And so she had developed this mindset where, well, she had severe dyslexia. She was an interior designer, and that's all she could do. She wasn't technical at all, and she couldn't do anything at all. And then she took Learning How to Learn, and she thought, well, now wait a minute. <laughs> Maybe I can learn, maybe I can change. And I, I couldn't believe it. So she, Audrey comes out and she's schlepping a camera, sets up her whole you know, studio in our living room. And so she has changed herself from being a complete, a person who couldn't do anything technical to actually filming her own PBS. You know, it's been greenlit on PBS to uh, you know, a show about learning. and, and we both agree that it's really the, a mindset where you grow comfortable with being uncomfortable is really one of the best mindsets you can, you can develop when it comes to learning. So as, uh, so I, I'm probably not giving much away when I say that she actually ends the first episode by going out on a trapeze. So, uh, so she really is taking that idea of getting comfortable with getting, you know, growing comfortable with being uncomfortable. So you have to be a little bit cautious because the idea of mindset, which was sort of, uh, so uh, Carol Dweck, a, a professor at Stanford, has, you know, promulgated the idea of growth mindset, that if you have a growth mindset, in other words, you think you can change, that you can be you're far more effective than if you don't have a growth mindset. And you know, there's lots of research that contradicts what she finds. You know, the, there's research that just says, actually, it doesn't really seem to make any difference at all. If you study, People who get high scores on you know on a college prep test, for example, it doesn't matter whether you have a growth mindset or you don't have a growth mindset that people those people with high scores have high scores, whatever their beliefs are. there is I mean your thinking about what you can or cannot do really does have an impact on whether you can or cannot do something. I mean for me, I was like. Totally convinced, growing up, that I couldn't do math or science. That was it, period. And that's full story right there. And of course, when I got out into the real working world and found that a lot of the jobs had some kind of technical aspect to it, uh, and besides, I didn't want to stay in the army for the rest of my life. At age 26, when I got out, I just thought, you know, maybe I should rethink this idea. So I was pushed very hard to develop a uh, a mindset where I was more, you know, willing to, to grow in, in what I was thinking about and doing. There's also, um, I know a woman who runs one of the world's largest language institutions, you know, so it has uh, like schools all over the world. And I asked her about a friend of mine who's who teaches English in Japan? And he had taught these two youngsters English since an, a very early age. And they had they spoke flawless English until they started to reach their teenagerhood. And then suddenly they began to develop a pronounced Japanese accent. And um, and I asked this woman who runs these language schools, why would that happen? You know, they're, they're being exposed. They, they've got the, the input. And she said, it's, it's the mindset. It's the personal identity that the person has about themselves. And that changes their motivation. So she said, for example, I have two sons. One speaks flawless American English. The other has been equally exposed to American English but speaks with a heavy accent from the country she's from. He identifies as being a person from that country, whereas her other son identified more broadly as being from either place. So, so your personal identity can it, you know, and who you think you are, who you think you are as an investor, uh, as a parent, as a sibling, as. That can have an enormous and disregarded, or sometimes we're just not aware of it because it's part of that, uh, you know, that unconscious procedural um, way of thinking about ourselves. But that that kind of mindset is also really important. If we see ourselves as a really good investor and we're willing to put in the effort to actually become one, then. Um, you know, that's very different from seeing ourselves as sort of a, my identity is as an investing dabbler, uh, something of that nature.
0: So this part of the conversation could be one of the most valuable things that we've ever talked about on this podcast, because, um, you know, one of the things that Tony Robbins has said, you know, in, for many years is that the strongest, um, you know, the strongest force in a human life is the desire to remain consistent with the way that we define ourselves And I think a lot of um, us, most people are not conscious of the way that they define themselves. They're not conscious of these conversations or these below the line or this intuition that says, I can't or I shouldn't or if I do, I might fail. Um, I think about, you know, investors, um, you know, one of the things like we're doing right now in our company is we're acquiring a 50 million dollar deal. And, you know, in every corner, every turn, the question comes up oh my gosh, can we do it? You know, um, what if we fail? What if we fall on our face? What if we do this in the wrong capacity? And so I think about this identity as being so powerful because if we don't have the encouragement from ourselves to be able to behave and move forward and try and go after big things, then we'll never get there and we'll never start to sort of expand that sense of identity. But I don't know if that resonates with you or or not, but I think about that. It's this constant conversation. And once we have an understanding that there is a conversation going, whether we're aware of it or not, then we now have the power to step in and say, OK, let me sort of be the uh, the the counselor of this conversation. and Let me start to dictate the terms of this discussion. Does that resonate with you?
1: Oh, yes. And, and I think something that's important to realize is that um, your discomfort with you know grasping for this huge and kind of scary thing is a blessing. And it always annoys me when people will say, oh, you know, you feel like an imposter, but In reality, think of how positive, you you know, and you've gotten this far and you should be. No, it's like, don't think that way. Just embrace, well, as the, what is it, the Marines say, embrace the suck. Mm -hmm. But you feel uncomfortable. That's really good because it will help you be more on edge and aware of the many different things that you need to be being aware of. If you get comfortable with, I got this. Yeah, I know we can do this. You know, that that way lies danger.
0: Yeah, that's so good. That is so good. Barbara, my goodness. I mean, I could just go on and on. Uh, I mean, you know, there's an endless fascination that I have with, you know, how our brains work, uh, how we can optimize and utilize this amazing gift and really, you know, bring it you know, to the next level and beyond in terms of how we utilize this tool uh, in terms of how we make decisions and how we grow, how we expand, how we live a life of fulfillment. To me, it's just endlessly fascinating, which is why I just love talking with you. And I love learning sort of the correlation of the path of saying, well, wait a minute, if this doesn't feel good, What what is that clue, and am I actually learning? What's happening in my brain, and how does that relate towards my goals and you know the future uh, that I have a desire to create myself and and so forth? But I love to be able to share this with others, and I'm so grateful that we've had the opportunity of having another discussion around this, Barbara. But uh, you know, I I just since we've already gone through the rare air questionnaire once, I I won't take you through that again. Uh, But I will ask you, Barb. What are you most excited about these days? I mean, obviously, you've got a lot going on. Uh, you're, you're continuing to serve really, ultimately, hundreds of thousands, if not more people on a consistent basis. But what are you most excited about these days, Barb?
1: Uh, investing in the future. And by that, I mean several different things. Um, you know, for my work, my work is really an attempt to invest in the future for everyone. It's an attempt to to build the ground floor of learning, of, of what people know, uh, and helping people to learn more effectively so it raises all boats. But I love what you're doing. I just have to say it resonates with what I'm trying to do, because I think that sometimes people don't realize how important it is to invest in your own future and think about investing in in really, you know, I, I think it makes some people uncomfortable to really delve into that because it can be a scary kind of thing to learn about and to do. So I just love what you're doing because I think you're you're helping a lot of people to to grow um, and to think about their future. I still remember my my aunt had never thought about investing or anything at all. And so then, when she retired, she moved in with you know my father and uh, and his wife, and um, and he always said, you know, I wish she had really thought about those things because she never had, and I and that always resonated with me. So I think what you're doing in helping people really think more wisely about investing, so they have more options as they grow older, is a fantastic thing.
0: You know what I just realized is that real investors invest in their future and they invest in their future by recognizing what it is that they have at their disposal. What assets do you have and what assets do you want to maximize? And, you know, our brain is one of the greatest, if not the greatest asset that we've ever been gifted. And uh, we have so many gifts if we recognize and, and we we step into a sense of gratitude And we, you know, we maximize sort of those, those tools, but I just really that I've never thought about that, but you know, we're talking about investing in real estate, which is obviously a phenomenal asset that can create financial freedom. It can create, you know, wealth creation, you know, you can develop multiple streams of income and all of these beautiful things, but the real investors not only invest in real estate, but they invest in their future as well. So Barbara, is there any parting thoughts or words of wisdom that you'd like to share with Elevate Nation today?
1: I just think keep listening to Tyler because you'll be learning much, much more about yourself and how to most effectively improve your future. So I really appreciate the chance to share here today and uh, just keep learning. It, It will help you all the way through the rest of your life.
0: What an unbelievable joy, as usual, Barb. Uh, Thank you again, Barbara Oakley, everybody. I want to invite the listeners to, uh, if you have not already listened to episode 159 with Barbara Oakley, again, that's learning how to learn effectively. So if you really enjoyed this conversation, you will absolutely love that conversation as well. So you can go even deeper on all of these concepts. And Barb, tell the listeners where they can find you and learn more about what you do. Oh,
1: that's pretty easy. Just go to BarbaraOakley.com and you'll see links to all my book and the courses uh, and also you should be aware that the courses are actually free. Uh, if you want a certificate, of course, you can get one, but if you don't and you just want to get the ideas, they're all right there, which is why one reason I love the company Coursera that puts these courses out so. So uh, just happy learning uh, as always.
0: Barbara Oakley, until next time. Thank you so much again for being on the podcast.
1: It's my pleasure.
0: Elevate Nation, the great Barbara Oakley, the fun Barbara Oakley. I had to get her back um, just having her on the podcast a year ago. Just really enlightened me, excited me. And um, I just think that there's a lot of clues here. You You think about obviously maximizing our investment portfolio is just something that we're all interested in. Um, But how do we do that? And I think it comes down to stepping our performance up uh, to the next level. And that starts with learning that starts with using and and interacting with our brain, uh, interacting with our mind, understanding how mindset overlays, you know, on this tool that we have, um, you know, and really engaging in a bit of discomfort, a bit of repetition, a bit of practice to be able to turn that neuroscience into results. And that's what this is all about. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation. I want to encourage you to identify your top one, two, or three takeaways from this episode and share those with a friend. Have a discussion around this podcast and what it means for your implementation, for you to take your own learning, your own empire, your real estate empire, uh, but really your tool and yourself to the next level. What was it that you loved about this? I want to encourage you, most importantly, to make a commitment to take massive action, whether that's putting something on the calendar. Maybe it's thinking about something differently. Maybe it's a um, maybe it's a tool, a tactic, a strategy that Barbara suggested today that uh, is making you sort of think about the way you think differently. And that can be a way of taking action. So I want to encourage you to take massive action. Until next time, Elevate Nation, thank you so much for tuning in and we will see you next time. Thank you for listening to Elevate.